This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. We have another episode in store for you today. Again, like the recent episodes, it's all about COVID-19. And I have my brother, John, back on the show with me. John, welcome back. Hey, Mike. Thanks a lot. How are things going for you? Not too bad. Yeah, I just came off service. Um, I guess it depends when this gets released, but sort of I was on service up until mid-July and uh, no patients hospitalized with COVID-19 at Sinai, which is great to see. How are things in uh, Calgary? Uh, Things are good. Uh, About an hour ago, we had a tornado warning, but that has been pushed aside and now it's just a severe thunderstorm warning. So if you hear some grumbling in the background, that's the weather. That's the weather. Okay, fair enough. It is not your dog, Mushu. It is the weather. Yes. All right, cool. So, you know, how on earth is this pandemic going to end? I don't know, but hopefully a vaccine will be the way out. So I created that segue for myself. Of course, today we're going to talk about two vaccine studies. I'll go first. Um, This study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on July 14th of this year, entitled An MRNA Vaccine Against SARS-CoV-2 Preliminary Report. So what was the research question here, Mike? What is the safety profile and immune system response for this novel SARS-CoV-2 specific vaccine? Okay, great. Uh, We haven't really gone over anything about vaccines yet. So maybe do you want to just give us a bit of background around uh, aspects of immunology, really, and uh, talk about what this paper is getting at? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, going back to basic immunology, we can sort of think of it in terms of innate immunity and adaptive immunity. So within innate immunity, it's sort of like, you know, the white blood cells that are just kind of hanging out and ready, ready for any form of an attacker, uh, regardless if it's ever met this attacker before. And these cells include eosinophils, basophils, macrophages, and mast cells. And of course, after the body has encountered a given infection, often, not always, but often, immunity develops. And we call that arm of the immune system adaptive immunity. So within adaptive immunity, we can think about the B cells. B cells make antibodies. And then T cells mainly make cytokines. And cytokines mainly act almost at the level of the cell, should it be to kill an infected cell, for example. So B cells make the antibodies. Those antibodies can serve differing roles, whether or not it's to prevent infection and entry of the virus into cells. And there's also neutralizing antibodies. And then T cells really get to work when and if viruses have infected the cell or attached to the cell. How's that for some basics? Yeah, that's great. Uh, You know, it kind of reminds me of our old immunology courses at uh, Queens for Life Sci. (laughs) So that's a good little primer. And now specifically for this paper. So, you know, what was the target for the vaccine? What was their approach? Yes. And, you know, full disclosure, I don't know much about immunology, but for the past hour, I've been reading more on it. So I can't even begin to pretend like I'm any expert in immunology. But this specific vaccine, so as mentioned, this is an mRNA vaccine, and specifically, the portion of the RNA encodes the stabilized pre-fusion SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. 
And of course, this spike protein is how this virus gains entry, you know, into the cells. So that's a little bit about what's sort of at the core of this. And more specifically, it's an S-glycoprotein that mediates a host cell attachment and is required for viral entry. So the idea is if we can create a vaccine so that the body thinks it's encountered the spike protein, perhaps the body can create antibodies um, to prevent infection should somebody become infected with the coronavirus. Okay, perfect. So how was this study designed? Yeah, so this was a phase one open label dose escalation study. So everyone included in the study got two vaccinations approximately 28 days apart with this mRNA vaccine. And the goal as written in the manuscript was to determine safety, reactogenicity, and immunogenicity. We'll talk a little bit more about what those words actually mean and pertain to. In terms of who was included, it was um, adults aged 18 to 55. These were healthy adults, and they weren't screened for prior or current infection with um, SARS-CoV-2. And as noted in the title, this is a preliminary report. So we have sort of follow-up up to day 57. And within the study, there were three groups, 15 people who got the low-dose vaccine at 25 micrograms, 15 who got the moderate dose at 100 micrograms, and then 15 who got the higher dose at 250 micrograms. Um, The outcomes included the antibody titers, as well as neutralizing antibodies, and some aspects to quantify the T-cell response. Okay, great. So a number of patients given different dosing of this vaccine and then assessing the response of it. Uh, Who were these patients? What did they look like? Yeah, so we don't have a ton of uh, granular details, but um, as you noted, 45 people in total, 50% were women, average age was 33, 90% was Caucasian, average BMI was 25, and that's all we got. And so as best I can tell, you know, uh, young, healthy Caucasian people were those that were studied. I should probably also note that this study was sponsored by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, you know, the home of Anthony Fauci, as well as Moderna, which is a biotech company. So it was a sort of a, a joint collaboration. Okay. And so what were the findings? Yeah. So the findings here are kind of broken into different aspects. So maybe we can talk about the safety first, which is really, that's why you have a phase one study. It's really to determine, is this going to be safe? So there were no serious adverse events. So that's great. There were a number of side effects. Most often those included, you know, headache, fatigue, pain at the injection site, and people in the lowest dose group. So about one third um, had such side effects in the moderate dose, about two thirds. And then in the high dose, about half. So not exactly a dose response. And then the big second question was estimating the degree to which there was an immune response. So as mentioned, we have B cells and B cells make antibodies. And then we have T cells and T cells have a cell mediated immune response. So let's talk about B cells first. In terms of the um, IgG response, there was a clear and dose response. And I'm not going to give numbers because the numbers are pretty much meaningless, um, but they were at a similar level to the magnitude if you compared the IgG response to individuals who had recovered from the virus, um, that so-called convalescent serum. So a pretty robust IgG response, 
Uh, and then we talked about the neutralizing antibodies. So after a single dose, uh, less than 50% of people develop neutralizing antibodies. But after the second dose, neutralizing antibodies were detected, uh, essentially all of the participants and at or above those seen in convalescent serum. And then finally, for the T-cell response, it showed a strong CD4 T-cell response, primarily in the way of such things like TNF-alpha, interleukin-2, and interferon gamma. Okay, that all sounds really promising. I mean, I know this is just a phase one trial, but what were some of the limitations you're worried about? Well, it's a small study, and you know we have to be really careful at not over-interpreting anything that is presented Um, The goal of the phase one study is really just to look at safety. Does this kill people? No, it does not. Are there serious adverse events? I don't think so. But of course, it's a preliminary report. So it's a small study. It's an unblinded study. It has short follow-up, very promising. But those are just some of the important uh, limitations. Okay. What's your takeaway from all this? Takeaway is that I'm really excited. This is, I think, terrific preliminary news. And uh, of course, we need more studies. And unfortunately, uh, you'll have a nice one to uh, follow up on this one. Absolutely. Can we say, I guess, maybe not practice changing yet? What do you think? Yeah, enthusiasm changing, I guess, like this brings a lot of hope uh, and excitement. So trust me, as soon as the vaccine gets approved, I will be a very early adopter, 100%. Okay, great. All right, John. So we'll turn it over to you. So now we go from a phase one study to some more results. So what's the study you're going to discuss? So this paper is hot off the press from Lancet, published July 20th, 2020. It's called The Safety and Immunogenicity of the Chadox-1 NCOV-19 Vaccine Against SARS-CoV-2, a preliminary report of a phase one, two, single-blinded randomized control trial. Uh, This was published by Fulgati et al., And the question here was similar to yours, you know, what is the safety profile and what is the immune system response for this novel vaccine? Terrific. And any other background you want to chip in before we dive in? I mean, I guess maybe just to talk a little bit about the specifics for this vaccine. So this Chadox one, I I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. It has been used in other situations and it's been demonstrated to show both safety in other diseases for older adults and those that are immunocompromised. And apparently it's also able to be manufactured on a large scale, which is important. Now, this vaccine utilizes a replication-deficient adenovirus vector, and similar to yours, it's also targeting a spike protein that allows the virus to get into our cells. They've actually also shown that in animal studies with rhesus macaques, that this vaccine has actually shown immune response as well as protection against infection. Yeah, it sure is cool. And, you know, I remember doing a bit of a deep dive when this first was under development at Oxford. And it's just, you know, amazing because so much of the groundwork was already laid because this group was already developing a vaccine against coronavirus. And yeah, the timing could not have been better. So uh, what was the study design here? So this was a randomized control trial. It was a multi-center study done at five sites across the United Kingdom. Patients were randomized to either the Chadox-1 vaccine versus the meningitis vaccine. 
And interestingly here, you know, they decided not to just give normal saline as a placebo because they were worried that if patients didn't experience some degree of local or even systemic reaction, which is more typical with this type of vaccine, then there would be the risk that, you know, the study would be unblinded and uh, that could compromise interpretation of the results. So this was a single dose IM injection that was given. Uh, 10 of the patients were in a subgroup that got a booster at 28 days later. And then they did some sort of additional subgroups in which certain patients might have also been given Tylenol as a prophylactic measure, again, to sort of get a sense for could this improve some of the potential side effects from the vaccine. Inclusion criteria was very similar to your study. So patients were aged 18 to 55 years old and they were healthy. Basically, if you had any diseases, you were largely excluded from the trial. Other exclusion criteria included if you had a prior diagnosis of COVID-19, Initially, they also excluded those in high-risk exposure groups, so frontline healthcare workers and their close contacts, but they did amend the trial later on to include those once they had the serology data to be able to say if someone had the infection or not. And then if someone also you know, had symptoms that were suspicious of active infection at the time of randomization, they were also excluded. For the outcomes, uh, the primary outcome, again, was looking for signs of adverse events, and that was graded for severity. And then they also looked at both the cellular and humoral response following vaccination. Yeah, it's it's quite cool for sure. And I, I really like how they had a sort of active comparator, if you will. I think that was quite neat. And hey, the benefit is uh, you'll be at a lower risk of uh, meningitis in the future. So there you go. Something even for the quote-unquote placebo group. Terrific. So uh, what did the patients look like who were included? So this was a bigger study. Uh, Over a thousand patients were enrolled between April 23rd and May 21st, and uh, they were all randomized. The average age was 35 years, 50% were female, and 91% were Caucasian. Okay, so exactly the same as uh, the study I presented, except I guess we're talking about the UK rather than the US. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I also realized in the UK, they don't call it Tylenol, they call it paracetamol. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. I've made that change on my own, but throughout the paper, it's paracetamol. I feel like if I could prescribe somebody paracetamol here in Canada, they would probably think it was like a stronger agent. So maybe I'll start saying that instead of Tylenol and we'll see how that works. But but anyway, um, what did this study find? So for this primary outcome of adverse events, they looked at both local and systemic adverse side effects. So for local effects, Things that were relatively commonly seen were pain and tenderness at the injection site. But when you looked at the severity, they were mostly mild and only a few were moderate in severity. And what they also were able to show was that Tylenol actually helped to reduce the rates of these side effects. For systemic side effects, common ones that were seen included fatigue, upwards of 70% of patients, a headache in 60%, muscle aches and fever are also more common. They looked at the booster group, and in the patients that got that booster at 28 days, they also experienced some adverse effects around the second dose, but there was a signal that it was less significant compared to the first time around. And then the severity and intensity of any side effect was really highest on day one. They also looked to see if there were lab abnormalities, and they noted that there were higher rates of neutropenia in about 46% of patients who got uh, SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. Now, when it comes to the antibody response, 90% of patients generated antibodies. These antibodies against the spike protein peaked at 28 days and remained elevated to day 56 in the subgroup of patients who were followed for that long. Amongst those that got the booster, they also showed an even higher antibody response. 
Now, as for the cellular response, they showed that peak T cell activation occurred at day 14 and was declining to day 56. In this case, the booster was actually not associated with an increased response. Okay, that's really interesting. And also the higher rates of neutropenia, you know, I've, I've never heard of that being reported with vaccines, but I also wonder how often after somebody gets a vaccine, you, you check a CBC. But anyway, um, interesting stuff and more promising as well, which is terrific. What were the main limitations here? Uh, you know, similar to your study, there were a few limitations. One of the big ones was that they did obviously exclude patients over the age of 55. But again, this is a phase one, two trial. And so you're really looking at healthy individuals. They also were limited in the sense that this was a single blinded design. But with that said, the plan for the next studies will include patients over the age of 55, as well as patients with comorbidities to be able to have a sense for, you know, in a more generalizable population, what does this vaccine do? All right, cool. Um, yeah, and this is this is just terrific stuff. Uh, so practice changing, I guess it's impossible right now. Uh, yeah, you know, I think that this is also very promising, and I think it really just encourages that at least this vaccine should be put forward for phase three trials, which are actively ongoing. And kind of like you, I mean, I think if things continue to go the way that they are, we need a vaccine, and I would certainly be happy to receive one if we know that it works. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, it's also interesting, not only is there lag time to create a safe vaccine, an effective one, but then actually producing it at scale. And it's been fascinating to sort of look at the economics behind this vaccine and, and other similar vaccines. So, you know, in this case, the Oxford group has partnered with AstraZeneca, and they're developing the vaccine through an at-risk approach, i.e. not at-risk in terms of safety, but that they're already producing it in mass amounts. And I think it was maybe a month ago in June that they started enrolling people into this 10,000 person phase three study in the UK. So that's, that's quite cool. Yeah, this is interesting. You know, the other thing is that there are a lot of vaccine trials in the works right now. I don't remember the number, but it's certainly, I think, over 100 vaccines are in development. So I do wonder if what happens if we see a, a number of potential targets that might be useful? You know, what do we do with all that information? But hey, I think it'd be better to have multiple options as opposed to none. Yeah, no, completely. And it, I think at last check, it was, you know, well over 150 and four are now in uh, phase three uh, study, uh, which is terrific. You know, the other really interesting thing that I was sort of seeing on Twitter is we've seen uh, just a few days ago out of New England, sort of a study showing these waning antibody response over time. So among people who get infected, you could check their antibodies, you know, a month after, and then six months down the line and sort of see a decline which at first you'd think, well, that doesn't sound too good. But the more I read and understand about immunology, the more I appreciate the fact that it's not just about the antibodies. And, you know, look at measles, look at uh, hepatitis B, you have immunity conferred for, you know, in some cases, decades after, regardless of whether or not the antibody can be detected decades after. So I also found that, you know, sort of the preemptive reassuring signal. Yeah. And in this paper that I was reviewing, they also did speak to the fact that, in fact, the T-cell response seems to play a, an even more important role when it comes to COVID-19. I don't think I fully appreciate the nuances of why that is, but, you know, we're seeing with both of these vaccines that they target, you know, both the T-cell as well as B-cell response. So I think all good news. All right. Terrific. And there's the magic word. So, yeah, what do you have up for us for the good stuff part of the show? 
Uh, so for this week of the good stuff, I like coffee. There was a paper out of the New England Journal of Medicine speaking to coffee, caffeine, and health, kind of going over what is the evidence for um, both, you know, positive and negative health implications. I think the reassuring thing is that, you know, if you're drinking coffee regularly, you're probably going to be A-OK. And uh, speaking of which, I might go grab a cup right now. Yeah, yeah. I, I also love coffee. So that is music to my ears. All right. So and what I have, it's just a link on Twitter, but it's amazing. So it is uh, this guy. I mean, I'll just read the tweet. This guy has now made a painting in which he is painting himself, painting himself, painting himself. So it's this really cool painting of a guy painting himself. And then he paints a painting of him painting himself, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. It like reminds me of that Incubus um, a music video. Oh, yeah, the MC Escher inspired one, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, because it, it, you know, it all derives from MC Escher. I mean, who knows where he got the idea from, whether it was a another artist or, you know, some sort of exotic drug, who knows. But anyway, John, all right, well, this episode is was full of good stuff. I feel like uh, some of the COVID episodes are kind of doom and gloom, but lots of positive things to talk about today. Absolutely. Look forward to talking with you again soon, Mike. Sounds great. Take care. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.